All right, we're going to be in John 15 tonight. And just as an introduction in the Gospel of John, uh, we see that there are several statements made by Jesus during his ministry um, that, be con- that should be considered in light of the overall reading of John's Gospel. Um, Curtis taught on one a couple weeks ago on a Sunday morning. You can go and look at it. And he taught on um, Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Um, but these, these seven statements are commonly referred to as the I am statements, and they're surrounded by teachings made by Jesus himself, uh, and they're recorded by the Apostle John to confirm and to further reaffirm, rather, the identity of Jesus. So as John's writing his gospel, he wants to communicate this primary truth that Jesus is God, and that's an important thing to know, and he wanted his readers to understand that as he was writing his gospel. And so... Like I said, there are seven of them, these I am statements in the Gospel of John. We're not going to go through all of them. We're going to go through just one. But they are found in the following passages. I would encourage you to go look them up and read through them and really just reflect on and take some time to study them. They're awesome passages. They're found, Jesus makes these, these seven statements in John 6, 35, in John 8, 12, in John 10, 9, in John 10, 11, in John 11, 25, in John 14, 6, and in John 15, verse 1. And tonight we're going to look at that final one listed. We're going to look at the one listed in John chapter 15, verse 1, and look at the verses to follow. So in John 15, Jesus communicates. He says in the first verse of John 15, I am the true vine. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to unpack that this evening as we study God's word together. So I'm going to read through the first 12 verses of um, John 15. The verses will be up on the screen as well. Follow along. Um, This is what it says. The words of Jesus speaking, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So looking at the context of these verses, we see that John 15 comes towards the end of Jesus' ministry, if you look at the overall picture of the Gospel of John. And as he's coming to the end of his pre-resurrection ministry to his disciples, and as he draws near to his suffering that would lead to his death and crucifixion on a cross, he is inviting his disciples, the audience that he's speaking these words to, into a better understanding of what abiding in him as the true vine truly looks like. Now, this, this statement and this picture that he's giving us of him being the vine is something that, for us, might, we might look into it from you know, 21st century American eyes and not 
be familiar with what he's talking about, but his disciples would have understood this because of the verses that we're going to look at here. We have an imagery here of the vine, Israel, as the vine that the nation of Israel is connected to. Any Jew would have kind of tapped back into the nationality or the, the Jewish traditionalism of we're part of the vine that is the nation of Israel. And this isn't something that um, we just speculate on. Jesus, or the, God's word actually communicates this. Um, Jesus is communicating here that he is the completion of yet another one of the Jewish Old Testament types. Right? We've seen that all throughout the book of Hebrews. You guys were here for that study. And all throughout God's word in the New Testament, we see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And yet again, he's saying when he's making this statement here in John 15, I am the true vine, that he is the completion of yet another type that was communicated to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus needs his disciples to know that finding their identity in Jesus is far superior to their grounding in their Hebrew nationality and their Jewish culture. You see, Jesus' claim here is to transition their gaze from Israel as the vine to Jesus as the true vine. That was directly in contrast to what we see in, or what they knew as a culture. So let me put a verse up on the screen for you. And in Psalm 80, we see one of several verses that communicate this idea of Israel being the vine. In Psalm 80, verse 7 through 13, we see um, that the, the psalmist is writing and saying, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way shall pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Here in these verses, we see that this is a psalm of lament and a cry for restoration, if you read the whole psalm of Psalm 80, to cry for restoration, which, um, according to one commentator, reflected a time when the nation's troubles appeared to have no identifiable source except God's inexplicable displeasure with them. But we know that nation of Israel was called to walk in light of God's commands in that old covenant, and they weren't able to do that because um, of their sin, and so... God had to pass judgment. In youth group, we're studying that in Hosea, and it's a very prevalent thing um, that we see throughout that book as well. And so here the, the psalm communicates the lament because of Israel's sin, and it's a cry for God to restore. Another passage that ties the idea of Israel being the vine or the vineyard of the Lord is Isaiah chapter 5. And we're not going to read through the whole thing, but looking specifically at verse 7, we read this. Um, Isaiah says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And in I, Isaiah 7, um, the verses to precede this communicate a prophecy of God's judgment on Israel, his vineyard, because they were an unproductive group at producing the fruit that he desired them to produce. And so in this passage, after as we look back at John 15, after all that Jesus had taught his disciples, as he nears the end of his ministry regarding his identity through his ministry, Jesus wants his disciples to know that he is the vine. And not just the vine, but the true vine. Right? He's the completion of that, that vine, the vineyard of Israel in the Old Testament. And that his disciples ought to be rooted or abide in him rather than in their Jewish nationality or their Hebrew culture. 
This is also very distinct, as, as we think about it, from the, the rules and the expectations and the traditional um, commands that the Pharisees had for the nation of Israel. Um, and so that's an interesting thing that you can, you can look at on your own as well. And another important side study that we don't have time to get into this evening, um, but one that will be rewarding for you to do on your own if you, if you desire to, is to go read Jesus' parable in Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46, the parable of the vineyard uh, and the vine dressers. Um, and the verses that we just looked at in Isaiah and Psalm 80 um, do a great deal in shedding light on what Jesus is seeking to communicate in that parable as well. So go look at that on your own if you, if you have a desire to do so. But back to John 15, we're going to just piece it apart and look at this in context of what we've just looked at um, in Isaiah and in Psalms and have a, hopefully have a better understanding of what Jesus is truly communicating here. So looking at the first three verses, put them up on the screen again. Um, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. So here we see these verses begin to highlight the characters in the illustration that Jesus gives. Anytime we're telling a story, it's important to know who the characters are, right? And so we see here that Jesus is the vine. His father is the vine dresser. And we didn't quite get to it in this reading, but we did earlier. In verse 5, we see that Jesus' followers are the branches. Jesus directly communicates here that he is the true vine, and his father is the vine dresser. The vine dresser is the one who cares for the vine by tending to the branches from eternity past. God has always loved Jesus the vine, and just like in Israel's day, God cares for the vine that is his and the branches Israel in the Old Testament, and you and I who are in him or abiding in him today. And Jesus points out two specific ways in which the vine dresser cares for the branches. And so in answering that question that maybe the disciples had, he, he mentions these two ways. First, we see in verse 2, by taking away or lifting up the branch that does not bear fruit or drawing it closer to himself through circumstances that reveal dependence on him alone. Now, you might ask, Paul, how, how do you get to that conclusion? Because if we look at what it says here, at least in the translation, it says, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And I thought, man, like, I need to understand this. And so when we look at that word, takes away, and you can go look at it on your own, it's the word iro. Um, and the biblical usage of this word uh, relates to the idea of lifting up or drawing up to a place where something can be better nourished. Right? And so the idea of like if the vine is on the ground and it's, just, it's not being able to get sunlight, it's not being able to get nutrients, it's just getting like walked on or trampled on, the idea of this, this word iro is like lifting up and bringing it to a place where it can receive sunshine, it can receive nourishment, it can not just be left on the wayside. And that's what the vine dresser is doing here in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he's lifting up, he's, he's taking care of, he's bringing it closer to himself. For those of you who are parents, it's like bringing that kid who's hurt and bringing them close to your chest. So we see here that it's not destruction, but tender care that the vine dresser offers to these branches that are not bearing fruit. The second way in which the vine dresser cares for the branches is in the, uh, what we see that follows. It's by pruning the branch that does, not, or that does bear fruit um, through conviction that leads to repentance and restoration so that 
um, more fruit can be born or produced in the life of this branch that is bearing fruit. So the end goal is that the branches be bearing fruit. Jesus reminds, then reminds his disciples that specifically with them, as he draws to the end of his ministry, that what he has already begun, the work in his life, and, or the work that he's doing in their lives through the communication of his teachings and the miracles that he's performing and the interactions he's having with the religious leaders, interactions he's having with tax collectors and sinners, all these things are beginning to help to impact these branches that are in him, these disciples. And we see that in verse 3. And so interestingly enough, we see that Jesus' word the word of God made flesh that John points back to in the beginning of his gospel is a key element in the lifestyle of abiding, which is a big part of what this entire interaction Jesus has with his disciples is all about. Reading on in verses 4 through 8, we read this. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So here Jesus offers an invitational command. It's invitational because you can choose to accept or reject it, but it is a command because he is God and he has the authority to command us in how we ought to live our lives. This invitational command that he offers is the command, abide in me, while simultaneously offering the most comforting of words. He says, abide in me and I in you. Jesus is stating that he is with his followers and that soon he will send forth his spirit to dwell in the hearts of those who abide in him. Looking at the context of what Jesus had literally just taught while they're at this last supper together in the, these chapters of John, looking at John 14, 16, we'll have it up on the screen for you guys. Jesus says this, Even, uh, and, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So there's a future tense piece that the Holy Spirit is going to dwell with Jesus' disciples and they're gonna dwell, he's going to dwell in them as well. Jesus literally had just promised this, that the spirit of truth would dwell with them upon his departure. And so it's beginning to all add up. So I think at this point it's it's worth taking a step back and recognizing what a glorious truth it is to behold that our God's dwelling place is with man and that he desires to be with his people. We see this all throughout the narrative of scripture where God is walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then even after their, their transgression and their sin, they're eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God still desires to be with them, and he comes and confronts them for the purpose of their growth, right? For the purpose of their development, for the purpose of them recognizing what they had done. And then even post-sin being brought into the world, we see that God came to specific individuals. We see him interacting with Noah and Abraham, right? With Moses and with David, so many people. And we see that God is progressively moving closer 
to his people. He's going before them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of smoke with the nation of Israel. We see that he dwells with them. He tabernacles among them, literally in the tabernacle, as they would move around in the Sinai Desert. We see that when Israel sets up, um, God actually sets up the nation of Israel in, and we read it in Psalm 80, when God sets up the nation of Israel in the land of Canaan, right, that he demanded that they build a temple for him, that he might dwell with them, and yet there was some separation there, and only the high priest could go in at certain points, right? Then we see that when God comes incarnate in the person of Jesus, right, what we celebrate during this time of year, and what I think we ought to be celebrating every day of the year, Jesus coming, God dwelling among us, Emmanuel, God with us. We see that God is moving progressively closer, and now Jesus is saying at the end of his ministry, because Jesus, even, even in his ministry, was limited. People had a limited access to Jesus because they might have had to wait in line. Different times, Jesus would go off and pray to his father, and his disciples are like, where is he? And so there was a, a limited access, but Jesus is saying, and he's promising here that my spirit, the spirit of God, is going to come and dwell amongst those who abide in me. That's a huge promise, that God is progressively moving closer and closer and closer into an intimate relationship with his people because of the love that he has for them. We're going to see that unfold in the verses to follow as well. And so I think it's important for us as believers to recognize, for us as we read this passage to recognize that it was never about works formulated or plans to please him by our own doing to devise a system to gain his favor. All that supposed fruit of working to merit God's favor um, is but works done as filthy rags. So abiding comes first, and then the fruit comes. Abiding comes first, and then the fruit comes. So let's unpack that a little bit. Verse 5 tells us that apart from Christ, we are unable to do anything in terms of bearing fruit. So then, what is this fruit that Jesus is speaking of? Let's remember the verses that follow. Bringing him the glory to his name, because we were created to bring glory to our God ought to be the true objective. That ought to be the fruit that we are seeking to um, bring forth in our lives. In fact, I would go so far as to say, probably the boldest statement I'm going to make tonight is that good deeds are of no eternal value if they are not rooted in bringing glory to God. Good deeds are of no eternal value if they are not rooted in bringing glory to God. Because if you're trying to do good things to bring benefit to yourself, or if you try to do it selflessly, but really you want people to notice you, you're not doing them so that God receives the glory and the worship that he is worthy of and that we are not apart from Christ, then I would say that those things are of no eternal value. The next verse reveals that abiding yields the spontaneous prayers that are in alignment with what the Lord would have for his people in bringing glory to the Father. That's why Jesus can make this statement, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Here, this, this prayer model that Jesus is giving is an example of when we align our hearts with who God is and his word is in us and we recognize and we're meditating, we're pondering those things, then when we pray to God, it's not going to be things that just benefit us, but it's going to be things that bring glory to him. And when we bring glory to God, he delights in that. We see this as well in, we look back at John 14 just for context. In verse 13, Jesus says this as well, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will, be, I will do it. And so there's a direct connection between 
praying anything in Jesus' name that he will do it, and those things bringing glory to his heavenly Father. The things that Jesus prayed ought to be our prayer as well. Regarding verse 6 and the disconnected branches, I love what another commentator has to say. He says that the phrasing Jesus uses here is important. He didn't say if anyone does not bear fruit, he is cast out. Rather, he said, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out. He knows who abides, Jesus does. He knows who abides and who does not. And this can't perfectly be discerned by our own estimation of fruit in our own lives or in the lives of others, right? And so we need to allow Jesus to, we need to, we need to seek to abide in him on a personal, individual level and not worry about the fruit that may or may not be produced by those around us, right? It'll be pointing people and returning ourselves to this place of abiding with him. So, brothers and sisters, church, I think there's a question to ask here. Am I abiding in Christ? And my prayer is that you are, or that if you're not, today you will begin or resume the beautiful state of abiding with our Savior and Lord. Because then the question comes, what are we abiding in? And our Savior so graciously gives us the answer in the verses to follow. So let's look at what he says here. Verses 9 through 12, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The love that the Father and the Son have towards one another is something that we are invited into. It's a pretty cool thing. Look at what Jesus is saying here. Let me read verse 9 for us again because it just baffled me as I was looking at it. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That is Jesus saying those words. And he's saying those words to communicate the truth that the love that we receive is not counterfeit love from God. It's not second rate. It's not even a diminished love. He's saying that the same love with which the Father loves the Son the Father who, according to 1 John, is love. That's the very person, that's the nature of who he is, right? It's not just a part of him, but it is who he is. That same love extended from God the Father to God the Son is the same love that God the Son extends to us. That's incredible. We're not getting second-rate love here, folks. We're getting the real deal. This is awesome. And so when we continue to look at this, um, I lost my place. I got too excited. Um, <laughs> Um, the love that the Father and the Son have towards one another is something that we are invited into both to receive and participate in. Another command here is offered as well to us by our Savior. He's telling us to love one another as I have loved you. And I would say this here is the crux of his message to his disciples because don't miss what he's, he's saying here. In essence, he's telling his disciples a glorious truth that he loves us with the love of his Father. It's not anything that's fake. We get to receive the true love that comes from God through his son. So there's the focus on this truth that I think many followers of Jesus miss, unfortunately. And yet it is this that motivates what follows. Because then Jesus goes on to talking about his commands. Jesus wants us to know and experience his love daily. And it is the joyous thing that Jesus communicates, according to verse 11, to communicate that his joy and the light of 
of his Father's love that he gives us is something that we can find the fullness of joy in. Then we look at the verses to follow. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This commandment that Jesus gave was back in John 13, 34, and 35, which is the, the key verse for our youth group. And it's Jesus communicating to his disciples that um, this is how the, people, the world would know that they are his disciples, by their love for one another. And he says that in the same way in which we have received love from God, his commandment is to love others in the same way. And yet we can't love others with the love of God if we aren't actively, daily experiencing the love of God. And so, to summarize, Jesus' desire is that we abide in him. Only then can we be the producers of good and lasting fruit for the kingdom of God. This fruit, again, as we think about it, this fruit that brings glory to God the Father in the same way that Jesus brought glory to his heavenly Father. God's glory is communicated when we tell of the awesome attributes that God is, has done because we are personally experiencing them, because we are, being, we are walking in relationship with him. But first and foremost, we are called to abide. Now, as I, as I close out, something that I thought about when I was thinking about abiding is like, what's the, what's the definition of this? And, and Jesus lays it out. He's saying, abide in my love. Abide in the sacrifice. Abide in the recognition that I've done the greatest thing, the greatest act of love, the act of service towards you. Because in Jesus showing his love for us, he did four things that I think all fit together. And I think it very well just defines what this is that Jesus is talking about. Because what Jesus did is he gave what was needed the most in our lives, right? We needed a savior. That's the love he displayed. He gave us this love, what we needed the most, a way to get back to relationship with our Heavenly Father, what we were created for, but mankind had walked away from, right? Gave what we needed the most when we deserved it the least, right? Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This love that Jesus displays is giving mankind what we need the most when we deserve it the least at the greatest personal cost to himself, right? He literally went, he transcended time, space, and matter, and came and dwelt among men as our Emmanuel. He lived a sinless life. That sinless life did not mean it was easy. And in fact, I would say the life of Jesus is the hardest life ever lived. So at the greatest personal cost himself, both in life and in his death, right? And finally, it's at without the expectation of recompense or without the expectation that people would respond to that. It was a free gift given, and there was an expectation that we receive it, and yet there is a delight and a desire that we would receive his love for us. I think that's what abiding looks like. And we look back, and Jesus says it several times when he talks about in connection with his word. He's saying, abide in my love. Back in the, the earlier verses, we see that he talks about um, how we are called to know his word. In verse 3, he tells his disciples, already you have been clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And so we need to know the word of God, both this word of God and the word of God that is our Savior, right? And when we, exp we know that love, then we are truly able to abide. And then, remember, abiding comes first, and then the fruit comes. So we need to abide first, church. And so that is the key. Abide. Don't 
strive to do before you seek to be. That's the message that I believe we are to take away from these wonderful words of our Savior. So when Jesus is saying that he is the true vine, he's saying you don't have to do the works. He's telling his disciples, if we loop all the way back to the beginning, he's telling his disciples, you are not rooted in the expectations for the nation of Israel in order to have a relationship with God. He's saying, I am the true vine. I'm the person that when you abide in me and experience my love, that is sufficient. So Jesus, our Savior, is the true vine. He's not just a vine. He's not the precursor vine of the nation of Israel, but he is the fulfillment of that. He's the true vine, and my prayer is that we would receive and abide in that love today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you that you came to love that your entire ministry from coming as a baby in a manger to dying as a savior on a cross was all one big expression of the greatest love we could ever experience. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus teaching your disciples and giving us the ability to look back in time and and get to see the same words that that you shared with your disciples. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to just understand these far deeper and more intimately, Lord, as we reflect on this, God. And may we as your body, Lord, abide first. May we lean into knowing the love that our Savior has for us both in his character and in the words that we get to read in our Bibles, Lord, as we, as we pray and as we Lord, just show and give testimony of the ways that we see your love in our lives. And God, we just ask that that would, um, I ask that that would yield fruit in our lives, God, that would bring you so much glory and honor and praise, God, that the world might know of the love that you have for your people, and that they would, ex- they would know that and experience that for themselves. Lord, would you just convict our hearts tonight, Lord, as we go from this place to, to love more fully with the love of our Savior, that same love that between God the Father and God the Son for eternity past and is extended for us to partake in and to also distribute, Lord. Would your Spirit just help us to love those around us well with the love of our God. We love you, Father. We thank you for loving us. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus.